What an awesome word, forgiven. I think uh, that is something that in this world, uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, forgiveness. I think men and women and in our uh, sinful states and our rebellion, this is the reason there's uh, divorces and anger and hostility in the world because forgiveness is something that is um, not offered easily by men. And it wasn't easily offered by our Lord either because it costed him his life and, and the shedding of his blood. But he does give it freely to all of those who call upon his name and who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, they stand forgiven at the cross. And beloved, we are indeed forgiven, something to be thankful eternally for. So I'm going to ask you now to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 28, or Acts chapter 20, sorry, verse 28. Uh, we're going to be finishing our look at Paul's farewell address uh, to the Ephesian elders. Um, last week in verse 17 to 27, we were reminded um, by Luke of Paul's attitude toward serving the Lord, toward ministering God's word to them, and his attitude toward the future. And in each case, Paul manifested this deep trust and dependence on God. And he puts them himself as an example to be followed to them. In essence, he's saying, follow me as I have followed Christ. So what he does now in verses 18 or in verses 28 to 38, he builds off that exhortation to them and he exhorts these elders in their roles as overseers in the church. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, verses 28 to 31. He's going to exhort these elders then in the church that God has placed them. He's going to exhort them to carry out and fulfill their role. And then we're going to see in verses 32 to 35 that if that's going to be done faithfully, it needs to be in accordance with uh, God's word and his word of grace. And so he's going to commend them to the word of God in verses 32 to 35. And then he's going to close in prayer in verses 36 to 38. So that's the outline, exhortation, commendation, and prayer. So let's read these verses together. Starting in verse 17, we will read the entire account. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this testimony and this example of your servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank you for putting him here in your word as an example to be followed as he followed Christ. Uh, we should look to him uh, to learn from him, ultimately to see what it looks like to be a faithful servant in your kingdom. Uh, we understand as Paul would have been the first to admit that he was not perfect. But even at times, he says, what a wretched man that he is who will deliver him from uh, this flesh. And we too cry that, Father, uh, because we know that even in our own walk and in our own life, we are imperfect. But yet we can rejoice in the gospel as Paul did, that he has been forgiven of his sins, that he stands before you as one who is redeemed, and commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and we are glad for the example of how you used him to do that faithfully. We thank you, Father, that we are the fruit of that labor, that we stand here in 2021 as saints who have heard the same gospel message and who have been redeemed. And we recognize, Father, that that truth that was once for all delivered to the saints is something that you have called us to hold fast to, to be faithful, to bring the truth to the next generation and to take the truth into the world as Paul did. And so we know, Father, as your word has just said, that there will be savage wolves that will come in seeking to undermine the truth of the gospel and to draw away disciples after themselves. And so we pray that you would help us as a church and as, as a pastor to be faithful, uh, to fulfill the role that you have called uh, the elders to do as well as your church, that we would all be mindful of seeking to honor your word and to cling faithfully to Christ. So we ask now that you would bless the study of this word and bless your people and help us to see the importance that is laid before us here in this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we have read this passage, it's clearly an exhortation to the elders in the church of Ephesus. But at the same time, I was looking at the passage and I realized it's, it's not... It is an exhortation to the elders and to the pastors, and we'll look into that. But I want to remind you that it's also an exhortation to you, the, the church. Um, it should serve as a sobering reminder to you, beloved, um, that the church has and has always had false teachers who desire, they desire to lead you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They desire to undermine the gospel 
and they desire to create and to take followers unto themselves. This has been the norm since the Garden of Eden. Since the very days of creation where God created Adam and Eve in the garden and he, he placed them there, demonstrated his love to them, his grace to them, provided for them, gave him his word, and they had a relationship together from that very moment when Satan came and that deceiver of old came into the Garden of Eden. His desire was to lead them away from the word of God and the clarity of it. His desire was to break that fellowship and that unity and that relationship, to introduce sin into that relationship so that you, so that Adam and Eve would be severed from the God who created them, and, and it was successful. The world and Adam and Eve and, and even us into this day have fallen prey to those false teachings and that sin that impacts our mind and our thinking and the way we understand the truth. And Satan, the scripture says, is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And the fact of the matter is that false teachers are and have always been in the world and their desire is to lead you away from the Lord Jesus Christ to obtain followers for themselves and to fulfill their personal gains. And you need to know that. And you need to know that God has given you a responsibility in the church to know what the truth is so that you might know those elders and pastors under whom you place yourself. Because your responsibility as the, as the church is to know the truth so that when you recognize a false teacher and you recognize someone that is undermining the gospel and drawing you away, you need to be able to see it so that you might flee. Because they're out there and their desire is for, for you and for me. So one of the ways for you, beloved, to protect yourself against false teachers is to make sure that false teachers are not permitted into the church to begin with. This is one of the reasons, and uh, uh, thank you, Andrew, for the exhortation to the Sunday school class, but this is one of the reasons that was laid on my heart to even begin the confession of faith study. Because at the end of the day, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, and if each and every one of us are living in the world with our own personal confession of faith, then each and every one of us are more susceptible to being led astray. The, the confessions of faith are not the scripture, but what they do is they articulate the faith once for all delivered to the saints and they make it public. And what that does for us as a church is it enables us to be able to evaluate the truth and what we believe as a Christian body. Because if each of us are believing our own things and our statement of faith is so wide, then should a false teacher come in who undermines that truth and talks to you, whose belief and faith is different than your neighbor, and then you say, hey, here's a good teacher why don't you recommend him to come to, or her to come to the ladies' class? Then you say, here's another teacher, and you say, here's another teacher. Suddenly, the church is being filled with teachers and people that are undermining that truth of the gospel. So that was part of my thinking for us as a church, to be able to be grounded for your protection and for mine so that we know what we believe, so that we can recognize when we are being led astray from, from, from the truth. And so this is a helpful framework for evaluating, I think, in Acts 20, pastors that we um, place ourselves under. And some of the questions that you can ask yourself, just really that kind of draw out of this passage, are they upholding the gospel 
or are they undermining the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Are they twisting the word of God or are they faithfully expounding it? Are they pointing you to Christ or are they seeking followers for themselves? Are they after personal gain or are they more concerned with personal holiness? The church needs to pay careful attention not only to what is on the outside trying to come in, but it needs to pay attention to what is on the inside as well. So that is the warning here. And so just to give you some exhortations from God's word to you, beloved, in Jeremiah 29, 8 to 9, God says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You see what he says there? To you, do not, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. In Hebrews 13, 7 to 9, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. May God give us the grace, the strength, and the discernment of the Spirit to be faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you and for me, beloved. And so Paul here, with that weightiness on his mind, he turns his attention here to exhorting the elders in the church. And the first thing he's going to note, or at least that I want to bring to your attention, is just what a sacred responsibility it is, because that's what I think he lays before them. So we're going to go through a bit of a background of an elder, and just so we can understand it. So there are three, there are three ways that an elder is referred to in the church. Again, this is, this is a sacred responsibility, and, and I'll show you why um, from the scriptures, but just generally. There's three ways an elder is referred to. One is the Greek word presbuteros. Uh, that's used here in verse 17. So if you look at Acts 20, um, the introduction to this section in verse 17 he says he invited the elders to come to him, presbuteros. And, and that means, really it just means older, old man. But when it's used in reference to a title for leadership, as it is here, it doesn't convey age specifically, but it conveys maturity, respect, and wisdom that generally comes with age. So that's one way elders are referred to. The other Greek word that's used to refer to them is poimen, and that's from where we get the word pastor. And it's related to the verb which refers to the act of shepherding a flock. So 1 Peter 5, 2, they uh, shepherd the people of God among you. So that's where you get the word pastor from. They are to be shepherds of God's people. And finally, the, the other word used is episkopos, which is, you may have heard of the Episcopalian church, right? Uh, it, it means bishop or it means overseer, and, and it refers to one who provides oversight and direction. And so Paul defines these elders as episkopos in verse 28. So you can see the relationship between all three in this passage. The elder and the overseer relationship is clear, 17 and 28, but also the reference to pastoring, uh, shepherding the flock in verse 28 
relates to the term pastor. And so the point is that all three of these terms in the scripture refer to the same office in the church. An elder is a pastor, a pastor is an overseer, an overseer is an elder, okay? Another thing you have to recognize about elders within the church in this role is that there's always a plurality of them, all right? So you see that here, Paul is addressing multiple overseers, multiple elders in the church of Ephesus. Um, this is the regular practice you see from Paul as he's planting churches in Acts. Uh, for instance, on his first missionary journey, when he's passing back through the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Acts 14, 23, uh, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting then you can look at the other epistles. It's always referring to a plurality of elders. There are times where a particular church only has one elder or maybe even none. Like Paul tells Titus, go and put things in order that remain and appoint elders. And so that may be for a season, a period of transition, such as we're in with Nick having left. And so we have one elder, but we need more, right? We, we need the Lord to raise up additional men to be elders in our church, speak for the health and the well-being of our church body. So there's, there's always been a plurality. Now, I go through that because what I just found really eye-opening and something that was impactful for me for understanding this passage is the idea of having elders in the church is not a new thing to God. It's not, it's not new. God has always had um, the role, so to speak, of elders among his people. And so the practice of elders, and I'll, I'll show you why this is important, the practice of elders being given leadership among God's people actually has its roots in the Old Testament. So I'm thinking back to Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. So you remember where Moses is encouraged by Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses is overwhelmed. He can't do all of this. And so Jethro says to Moses, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people. And so during Israel, Israel's history, elders were these older and wiser men who ruled and judged in various towns throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So you have that in Exodus 24, Numbers 11:16, Numbers 11:24, Deuteronomy 31 verse 9, Joshua 24 verse 1, and, and so on. I, I could go on. But the idea is that this, this idea of elders being among God's people is not new. And in fact, a, a book on uh, biblical theology I've been reading G.K. Beale notes that the goal of having these elders to have these godly men was so that they could help Israel, help Moses, carry out the original mandate given to Adam to subdue the earth and Israel's commission to be priests for and a light of witness to the world. Remember, that's what God tells Israel. I want you to be a light unto the world. And so these men were appointed to help carry that out. They were to ensure the doctrinal purity of the covenant community. And they were to ensure that that covenant community of Israel was continuing in the truth and in the life of the kingdom. And by doing that, these men were supposed to help strengthen the witness of Israel unto the nations. And by the time of the New Testament, Jewish elders had respected places in the synagogues and among even the Sanhedrin. So this was needed because false teaching among God's people, like I said, has been a threat from the days of Adam and Eve in the garden all the way through the Old Testament. So the Old Testament shows false teachers arising and needing to be confronted from outside of the nations into Israel and from within Israel. 
they became corrupted. The covenant community became corrupted by idols and false teachings, and ultimately they were led away from the Lord, and they repeatedly violated their covenant obligations before the Lord. Their witness was corrupted, and they embraced and worshiped and served idols. Isn't that the Old Testament, right? Israel abandoned God and the truth of God's word, and God brings judgment on them. So it seems to me that God, what he had done for his people in the Old Testament, he's continuing in the new covenant. Only in the new covenant, it's not about a national identity and a civil and religious authority. It's only a religious authority within the church whose goal it is now to protect the church's doctrine and witness to the world regarding the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I mean when I say this is a sacred responsibility. It's, it's something that the Apostle Paul is placing before them and reminding these elders of their responsibility. And in fact, Luke says, Throughout Acts, he actually puts this juxtaposition in place between the old elders and these new elders. For example, if you look at as Christ's kingdom is advancing, um, not only is the same word used in Acts, but this book, G.K. Beale says, the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world through the gospel has actually been contrasting the two groups now. So if you, if, you'll, if you looked at Acts 4, verses 5 and 8, you have rulers and elders of Israel. If you look at chapter 4 as well, you have chief priests and elders of Israel. And then you have elders and scribes of Israel in chapter 6. And then you start to have, as Luke shows in Acts, you have the apostles and the elders of the church. And these are being put in opposition to each other. So when it comes down to defining the truth and the legitimacy of the gospel, the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, they get together to evaluate the Christian truth, and they say it's wrong, and they reject it. And then what happens in the church is the apostles and the elders are coming together, specifically in, like in, in uh, Acts 15, and they're looking at that false teaching, and they're addressing it together now to protect the church and the covenant community. So you have these two groups now that Luke is showing the church's responsibility and elders now is distinct and different from Israel. It's a new covenant community, and their responsibility is to protect the truth. And so when Paul addresses these elders, He's doing so knowing that their role is not to be taken lightly. And he actually says, you'll look there in verse 28, it's, it's sacred in two ways. Number one, he says, um, verse 28, says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, and what does he say, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is, this is God is making them and calling them in this role and gifting them to be overseers of God's flock, just like it was in the Old Testament. Oversee it, and we'll talk about what that means. But it's also sacred, and this was the most, <laughs> this was the most convicting to me. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And then what does he say? In which, which he obtained by his own blood. If that doesn't make you shiver as a, as a pastor, as an elder, or even as a child of God, I don't know what will. The, the church, the flock of God, is a flock that was purchased, laid hold of, redeemed, 
by God's shedding of his own blood on behalf of you. God made an atonement for your sin, beloved, by paying the price that you deserved, which means he was crucified in your place. That's what God did in order to bring you into his kingdom. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you as elders, when you are coming among God's people to be overseers for them, that God, the Holy Spirit, is, has gifted you to do and placed you there, you have to recognize the fact that these are people that Jesus bought. Beloved, you are, you are people and souls that Jesus purchased at the cost of his own blood. Can I love you more than Jesus loves you? I can't. Can any pastor love you more than Jesus Christ loves you? It is not possible. Because Paul, as he would say, was I crucified for you? Paul says, no. Was Apollos crucified for you? No. No one was crucified for you except the Lord of glory. And so this is a, this is a responsibility that he gives to them to remind them that this is not something to be taken lightly. And in fact, I, I won't go through these passages, but if you look at Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3 and you read through them, it's really interesting that in the Old Testament, when God comes to judge his people and, and, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to come and bring judgment, do you know where he tells them to start? He says, I want you to start in the sanctuary. That's where the judgment starts. He says, I want you to go through the sanctuary and the temple, and I want you to begin judging my people with the leaders there. So sacred responsibility. And so an elder is not someone who is there because of their own efforts, because of popularity within the church. An elder is not there because um, they are just, um, you know, really winsome people. But an elder is to be there because the Holy Spirit has placed them there. And they recognize it as a sacred responsibility. Which is why Paul lays out the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 5 to 9. And 1 Peter 5 also lays it out to, to understand that your responsibility is to teach God's people his word and to be an overseer. So you need to be tested and tried in the Christian faith. Now, what does that caring then look like? And so Paul tells them, it begins, number one, with, he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. So he's telling that these elders, you need to begin, if you are to be leading and feeding and teaching and caring for God's people, the thing that you need to do first is you need to pay careful attention to your own life and to your own doctrine. Because if your life and your doctrine and the things that you hold to are not resembling or picturing uh, what Christ has called you to be, then how can you possibly lead God's people? Hey, you must be like 1 Timothy 4.16 and 2 Timothy 2.20-21. 20 if you're going to care adequately for others, you will fail if you don't care for your own soul. So like Paul tells Timothy, take watch over your life and your doctrine. And that really, at the end of the day, was the downfall in Israel, right? All of the false prophets, like we've looked at in Ezekiel 33 to 34 and Jeremiah 29, those false prophets in Israel, they began to become consumed with themselves. 
every, everything that they did, they, they looked at their own desires and their own dreams and their own thoughts and their own plans and their own mission and their own vision and, and everything else that they're presenting to Israel. They're doing everything except calling the people of Israel to listen to God's word. And so they had given their life to someone and something else. And so Paul says, examine, he says, be careful to examine yourself. Don't be a blind guide. So after he does that, then he tells them, very, this is very, I, 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 my sense as I'm reading this is it's very sober. This is why I'm presenting it to you in a sober way. Because this is not flippant, right? This is sober that he's talking to them. And, and then he tells, he tells them in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And then here's where their role comes in. And to all the flock. And to all the flock. And, and the first way they pay careful attention to the flock is he says they are to care for the church of God. So what does that mean to care for the church of God? Well, the word for care is, like I said, mentioned earlier from where we get the term pastor. And it means to, to shepherd or to tend to, to care for a, a, a flock. It, it's the word that Jesus used if you wanted to look at John 21, 16. Do you remember when Peter falls into sin and Peter rejects Jesus as Jesus is being crucified and, and then our Lord lovingly takes Peter to restore him. And, and Peter is there and he's bawling and he's crying and he's, and, he, and he's like, he feels so, so low. And the Lord comes to restore Peter. And one of the things he tells Peter to do is he says, do you... Do you love me? Jesus asks him. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. And he says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, I love you. And then the word he uses is he says, tend my sheep. Care, care for my sheep, he says, Peter. And, and so that means that that. To, to tend to the sheep is to have that day-to-day -day life for the church, to care for them. What is, what is being taught? Where, where is the church weak? Where does it need correction? Where does it need guidance? And that's what a pastor does for God's people. He, he looks at their spiritual well-being and he tries to tend to them and care for them. And that's what Jesus told Peter to do. And so it also means feeding them good food, right? The main nourishment, which of course comes by means of the word of God. So caring for the flock means teaching God's people, as Paul has been showing us, the whole counsel of God. This is what Paul has been doing the, the whole time, strengthening the sick with sound doctrine, healing the diseased with divine correction, right? Those are going off. Binding up the broken with the comfort and kindness of the gospel, bringing back the scattered by visiting them and giving them God's word, seeking the lost through evangelism. Like it's all word centered, it's Christ centered. And, and, and Paul's calling these elders to care for the church, to lead them and to feed them as he did with God's word. But there's also another way here that Paul reminds these elders of their role. And, and I really think this is probably what's most on Paul's mind here. And it's that the pastor is not just to lead and to feed, but you'll notice that he is to also protect. He's to protect. That's what he says in verse 20, um, 29. When he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking 
twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Speaking twisted things. To twist something is to make something that was straight crooked. Make something that was clear and straight and precise and to, and to shift it and to change it. That is the nature of what false teaching is. So all false teaching, if you really wanted to sum it all into one thing, I, I, would, I would say it like this. You know that you are being taught something perverse and twisted when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the value of his life, death, burial, and resurrection is undermined. Why do you know Jehovah's Witnesses are false teachers? You know they're false teachers because they undermine the person of Jesus Christ. How do you know Mormons are false teachers? You know Mormons are false teachers because they undermine the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you know a false teacher by the way that they present and Jesus to you and what he did on the cross. Is, is his death and life and person elevated as it should be in God's word so that the death can pay the price for your sin? Here's where it gets harder to discern is it gets harder to discern when you are within churches that take the name of Jesus but they they don't truly love Jesus because they don't present the Jesus of the Bible so if you're in a church that says they love Jesus but you don't hear about sin and death and judgment and sacrifice and atonement and justification and redemption. If you're in a church that you're not hearing any of those things and you're never hearing the gospel, you are more than likely not in a gospel church. If you're in a church that is always talking about, and this is happening more and more, about social societal reconciliation, if you're in a church that's talking constantly about health, wealth, and prosperity, if you're in a church where the messages are always something centered other than on the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not be listening to a true teacher of God's word. You may be giving your ears to a false teacher because the Apostle Paul would have none of that. If you look at Paul's ministry, if you look at the ministry of the word, it's always a ministry that is intended to point the people of God to their Savior. This is why he says, just before this section, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's saying, I've given you the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ through and through. And he's telling these elders, you need to do the same. Now, that's not, that's not, all, that's not always easy. It's not always easy because it is extremely convicting. Like I am every every week I'm just I'm 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 convicted of my inadequacy of my of just my my guilt and my shame before the Lord. Like it every time I think about the gospel of Christ, I'm I'm convicted of that, but then I'm rejoicing in it because I know I'm cleansed, right? It's also difficult to do because if you're in a church and you're hearing the gospel and about Christ all the time, you may be thinking, boy, I, I keep hearing this again and again and again and again. I want something exciting, I want something new, I want something, I want it to be, you know, shiny and, and, and fancy and, and that just doesn't feel fun. But it's not about, it's not about fun and experiential. What it's about is laying the foundation and the groundwork so that we as God's people can know the truth to such an extent when the false comes 
we recognize it. So that's what he's telling them to do. Pay careful attention to yourself, to the flock. He says, because I know that fierce wolves will come in from the outside. Today, those fierce wolves are all over the internet. They're, they're all over the internet. You can hit a podcast, you can hit a website, and all around false wolves are coming in. It's even more important for us, beloved, to be aware of what we're listening to, right? So they'll come into the church. Then they also come from within. So within your own selves, he says, people will rise up and teach perverted things. And I think that the, the, the I, I think Peter does such a good job of explaining this. So look at 2 Peter. I'm just going to read it for you. But listen, even Peter, his weightiness as he's, he's thinking about the church that he's ministering to. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. I'll read 1 to 3, then 12 to 22. He tells them, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So see what he's saying? He's saying in the old, false prophets came among you. There's going to be false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then notice how he defines those even denying the master who bought them, denying the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So these teachers will undermine Jesus. They will bring in their own sensualities. People will follow them. And because of them, the gospel will be blasphemed. Have you not seen that? Have you not seen in our world someone claiming the name of Jesus? And because they claim the name of Jesus and then they live this way, what does the world say? Ha! Look at Christianity. What does that mean? That guy's living in perversion. That guy's living in sin. That guy is saying he's a follower of Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. They will come in the church, and because of them, the name of Jesus will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 12. But these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person so that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them is true. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. How's that? False teachers. False teachers who twist the truth and undermine the gospel. And so, so the elder that Paul is talking to is saying, care for the church of God and be aware of these false teachers that are going to come in and hold fast, hold fast the truth. How do we do that? Well, that's where really quickly here Paul says to them, because he's been through it, he says in verse 32, this is why Paul commends them to God and to the word of his grace. Because these elders could not rely on themselves to be faithful and to keep the church united in the truth. The church is to be united and built up by God's word. So this is what he tells them. I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it's God's word that builds up. It's God's word that binds the broken hearts. It's God's word that heals the weary soul. It's God's word that leads you in paths of righteousness and protects you from error and the schemes of the devil. It nourishes the hungry and the thirsty. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm commending you to God and to his word of grace. And then he reminds them again in verse 33. He he says, remember, I'm not like those false teachers, basically. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul is laying it bare before them to say, in my example, did I ever peddle the word of God for you for personal gain? Did I ever present myself to you, Paul says, as one who was after your money and your pocketbook? Is that, that he says, that was never my end game. In fact, it was never my end game. I can even tell you by the fact, he says, that when I was among you, not only did I not ask you for money, but I actually worked with my own hands and provided for those who were with me and their needs. So the Apostle Paul is saying, it's, it's always been about giving you God's word. And did he sometimes receive support? Sometimes he did. The churches did support him. But in this case, Paul is saying, I didn't do that. So that you might know God's word and his power. And so that's what he's exhorting them to do. He's commending them to the word of God, reminding them that he never desired anything but to minister to them God's word. He says in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, are you getting a picture of what a pastor should be by that? Are you getting a picture of where their heart should be, where their desire should be, where their emphasis should be, and what they should be feeding you? It's the gospel. And so Paul, what he does here then, in verse 36, after he had said these things, I just love the closeness here. He knelt down and prayed with them all. He knelt down and prayed with them all. They were in Christ, centered around Christ and his gospel, and they were united in that truth, and this is why he would kneel down and pray with them. And you might ask, what did he pray? I think he 
I think he prayed about everything he told them. I think he prayed for his ministry in the future, that God would be gracious to him. I think he, he, prayed, for, he prayed for strength as he goes to Jerusalem and to Rome. I think when he prayed for them, he prayed that God would protect them from the fierce wolves that will come in. I think he prayed for the church that they would be grounded in the gospel and the word of truth and that they would be strong and fortified in it. I think he prayed for the elders that they would be faithful, that they would not compromise, that they would willingly suffer for the cause of Christ if necessary. And I think he prayed that they would ultimately remember the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I, I think he prayed all of these things with them. And I think we need to be praying that as well. I think we need to be praying for pastors, not, not just for me, but pastors that we know that they too would be like that. Because I just heard this morning that James Coates was arrested again in Canada. It's, it's happening. Uh, a, a Christian lady in Finland, Steve and Arlene shared with me, sent me an article, I don't know if you guys saw it, she was arrested because she quoted from Romans chapter 1, I think it was, a couple verses, and put in prison. So this is just happening more. And I don't know how long it's going to be until, listen, we may have a moment where we need to get together. We always need to get together and pray, but there may be a moment like this where one of us is going off to prison. And what are we going to do and what are we going to pray about and how are we going to Hold the truth, hold the line for the gospel together. Uh, the way we're going to do that is by praying for one another. And so that's what he does with them here. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. That's a cultural thing. I don't know that we need to go on kissing each other like that. But in, actually, in my culture growing up, that's what we did. You, you gave a, a, a holy kiss to... Um, I have some, <laughs> I shouldn't go down this, but I have some pretty crazy <laughs> stories. At one point, I, I won't go, but I was like, whoa, okay, uh, this is a little awkward. But um, culturally, they, they, uh, they hugged, they embraced, they prayed, they kissed each other. And they were sorrowful, most of all, uh, because of the word he had spoken to them that they thought they would not see his face again in this life, and so they accompanied to him sh to his ship, and now Luke is going to tell us how Paul goes to ultimately to Rome. It's so it's so beautiful. God's God is accomplishing His purposes uh, through the faithful ministry of His Word, and and I pray we would carry that on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the account that was given to us here of Apostle Paul's. Uh, communication with these elders and, and really the sober exhortation uh, that was given to them to uh, take care and to, uh, of themselves, to, to be aware of their own life and their own doctrine so that ultimately they might rightfully care for your flock and for your people. Father, I do pray for this church here. I thank you, Father, for the testimony of the gospel that that your people here have professed to believe and to embrace. I thank you, Father, as I see the way you have changed lives and you have, I have heard of the testimony of your grace in many of their lives, how you have changed them from one who was dead in their trespasses and sins and you have made them alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to you belongs all the glory for that transformation as each of us would give you, Father. Uh, the salvation that you have blessed us with is is beautiful and to have adopted us into your family oh god is is a wonderful and a marvelous truth that we are eternally grateful for i ask father that you would keep them grounded in your word that you would keep them when they are in their homes and in the privacy of their homes from from allowing uh, perverse and ungodly things to enter into their homes may you give your people Father, discernment to know truth from error. 
May they not give their ears to those who lead them away from your son and the perfection of his person and sacrifice. May they not give their ears to that, Father, but may you keep them. May you keep them in your word. May you keep them faithful in the midst of trials and suffering. May you keep them on the straight and narrow. May you guard their hearts, Father, against error. May you protect them from savage wolves that would seek to undermine them and to draw them away unto that teacher as opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is only something that you can do for us. And so we pray for your sovereign care and your protection. And I pray, Father, that you would help me as one who has been given a responsibility in this church to be a faithful steward and and ambassador of the word you have given to us as your church. You would continue to help me faithfully expound the word and explain it as you have laid it forth in your word not to change it for personal gains or because it feels better, Father, for the people that are listening, but to just be faithful, that you would have your way with your word, that it would accomplish everything for which you sent it forth to accomplish, and that we would entrust the fruit, Father, to you. So thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sin and how you are patient with us. And I pray you would protect us in the name of Jesus, cause us to be faithful. Amen.